was just a young boy when I began to study the Torah and the law. My parents would often uh, take me to the synagogue and the temple where I would listen to some of the greatest teachers. And I quickly discovered that like, I thoroughly enjoyed studying and learning about the law and I became very passionate about my pursuit to understand it. I remember overhearing my mom boast of my accomplishments to some other mothers about how well versed I was in the scriptures, but eventually others started to notice as well. I recall one time specifically as I was walking out of the synagogue, I heard someone say, look, there's Paul. Rumor has it, he'll be the next chief priest. My understanding grew pretty rapidly to a point where even I was surprised by how much I knew. I often knew more than people who were significantly older than me anyways, but I made it my personal mission to make sure I knew more about the law and follow it more closely than anyone else. But I still remember the first time I heard about Jesus. Apparently he was performing controversial miracles and the other priests were incredibly upset about it. But to be honest, they actually seemed kind of panicked about everything. They claimed that all it took was one heretic like this person, one person with the promise of power and everything we've been studying and working towards would just turn upside down. And this man, Jesus, even went as far as to say to refer to himself as the Messiah. And I thought I could come across as prideful. I don't claim to know everything, although I do know most things, but one thing I was sure of was that the Messiah, that the Torah reference was not going to be fulfilled by some backwards carpenter. Men like this show up all the time. They gain a small following, but eventually they lose influence just as fast as they gain it, sometimes causing a lot of damage in the process. But later, when I heard that they were applying to crucify him, listen, I was fully supportive of it. He brought it upon himself with these outlandish claims. They crucified him, and I thought to myself, well, that's that. Hard to follow a dead guy. Thanks, you finally get back to normal, right? But that wasn't the case. It was just the beginning. We thought killing him would silence his followers, but it didn't. We made a martyr out of this guy. His following actually gained a lot of traction and they became very radicalized. They got bolder and started preaching the exact same lies that this man had been preaching and even the claims that got him killed. And they needed to be stopped. I know a lot of people, so I gathered some of my friends who were just as passionate about the law as I was, and we came up with some plans to stop these believers, as, uh, as some of them would call themselves followers of the way. Um, I finally understood why the other priests had been so worried. I had to, st I had to stop this, and, and I had to do it very quickly. The law was bigger than any one person or their followers, and so I did what I had to do. I did what I believed was necessary. So we warned them to shut their mouths or there would be consequences and they didn't stop. So we jailed them. Some instances we stoned them, but they just kept teaching about this Jesus. His teaching continued to spread all around the surrounding areas. And, and we would often have to travel to these locations just to clean up the mess that these followers caused. And I remember even on one trip, I was on my way to Damascus with some other Jews and there had been an uprising there. So we were just going to handle everything that had happened over there. But that's when everything changed. And I, I wish I could explain it, but it, I remember it seemed like there was a light coming from the heavens, but it was so bright, so intense that I fell off the donkey that I was on. And I realized I couldn't see anything. I had been completely blinded. And as I sat there, I tried to make sense of what had happened. I heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? taken back. I just, I remember replying back, who are you? And the voice replied, I'm Jesus, the person you're persecuting. I don't know how to describe it, but in that moment, everything that I had ever lived for, everything that I pursued as a result of my love for the law, it just completely shifted. I misinterpreted everything that I had learned growing up. 
I was persecuting the very idea, the very person that I thought I was protecting when I silenced and killed these followers. Jesus was exactly the person that he said he was. He's the Messiah. He is the Torah. He is the law. He is the one they were talking about. My drive didn't change, but my focus did. I realized the true meaning of the law and what it had been pointing us towards. It wasn't about establishing some kind of religion. It was all about people. This revelation changed my whole purpose. Rather than trying to eradicate the population of the believers, now was my mission to tell everyone about Jesus and about my experience. He was asking me to give up my passion for the law and to be passionate for souls, for people. So here I am. I've been beaten, stoned. I've had to escape cities in the middle of the night. This is my life. I wouldn't change it for a thing. Do you know what it's like to see people's lives change like mine was? To see them not just understand actually, like, but to experience the life of what it's like to follow Jesus, like having a savior. I mean, people have asked me why I do this and there's various reasons, but it comes down to one thing. If I, if I hesitate to go and teach people about Jesus in the hopes that someone else will, how, will, how many people will die without being saved? Now, my, my passion is for those who don't know Jesus, who have not yet experienced his love and the gift that he asks for everyone. My pursuit has shifted from the pursuit of the law and is now a pursuit to rescue people from the lies that keep them in prison. You could say that my pursuit has taken such a, long, a strong hold of me that I'm willing to set my own salvation aside so that others may be saved, but it's a cause I'm willing to die for so that I intend to spend the rest of my days pursuing it. It's all there is for me. It grips me, and it's the thing that drives me, and there's nothing that will stop me from doing it. Bethel's Rock with all of you, because how many of you know the Bible says to give thanks to the Lord and declare all of his works, amen? So we're supposed to testify. So today we're going to highlight uh, our kids. How many of you know that we had a Kairos retreat last weekend for the kids, and we had over 50 kids attend the Kairos retreat, amen? That was pretty amazing. Well, the kids' pastors reported that the, the, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, just fell on these kids, and in the last session, their altar time extended for over an hour. How many of you know, like, kids can barely sit five minutes, right? And they lingered in the altars for, for over an hour, and these many were filled with the Holy Spirit. The cool thing is that it wasn't just the youth or the children's pastors that were laying their hands on these kids and they were receiving the Spirit. It was actually kids that were filled with the Spirit laying hands on other kids and seeing them filled with the Spirit. Amen? I mean, these are 8, 9, and 10-year-olds, guys. It was, it's just amazing. One of the kids um, said that they didn't, he didn't really want to go to the, this retreat, but his mom made him. How many of you know we need good moms that make their kids do things they don't want to do because good things come from it? Anyways, he said he ended up going, and he told his mom later that he heard the voice of God speak to him for the very first time. Amen? God is doing great things in our kids, and we're just excited about our upcoming Kairos retreat for the adults, and we still have a little bit of space so you can find your way there and experience the Lord as well. Amen. I thought that was funny when they said how many, she said, how many need moms that make you do things that you don't want to do? And, and Leaf and Luther raised their hand and said, <laughs> maybe their mom made them raise their hand right there. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like, 
Uh, yeah, we have incredible kids uh, here at Farmington. I just really believe a number of them are going to be in ministry. And it's, it's interesting tonight, um, I'm preaching to a number of youth from across Minnesota at a, a conference they call the Called Conference. And so be praying around 5 o'clock. I, I believe many people look at this generation and all they see is the fall of the church. And I'm seeing a church arising from within the Gen Z generation, and, and um, you know, uh, uh, to those raising children right now, I was complaining about the millennials uh, yeah, as we're making this transition. How many millennials in here? I was complaining about some of you, and not you, but the ones that aren't saved. And uh, one of them on my staff, this is a number of years ago, he says, well, who's to blame? You're the one that raised us. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that is so true. Our kids really are a product of what we've raised. If that's true as parents, we can change that. And the church cannot replace what you do in the life of children. We only come alongside you to do that. We only we partner with you, and really, um, parents are the reason kids continue to walk out their faith with Christ, and we just come and, and kind of assist in that area. You know, I, one, wanted to thank Molly and Alex and their team of all the people who did these videos. They put these videos together. Didn't they do a great job doing that, just kind of <laughs> communicating the story? Molly Moon really kind of drove that, our small groups pastor. But you look at Paul, and it's interesting because Paul, prior to this, this story, when he started, he was all about following the rules that he would kill the object of God's love in order to get them to follow the rules, right? Now, I thought it was interesting. It made me think of this, and I'll be a little vulnerable. How many rule followers in here do we have? Uh, let me rephrase that. How many are married to a rule follower? And, and there you go. There, more honesty right there. I'm driving down the road, and the light was, the, you know, how at the intersection, and I'm behind a car, and the light flipped yellow, and the car in front of me went to slow down, so I went around them and went through the light. It was still... Still yellow when I was in the intersection, right? If I can get in the intersection when it's yellow, I'm legal, right? How many know what I'm talking about? The rule followers in here are like, you did what? You're my pastor and you did what, right? And, and when I went by the car that I went around, they honked the horn at me as I went around because they were mad. If I can't go through it, you shouldn't be able to go through it, right? And I thought that's strange. How is me going through the intersection hurting you, that it would cause you to get so upset that you would honk your horn at me for going through the intersection. Now, how crazy is that, right? Think about how crazy that is. And yet, there are a whole lot of Christians like that. We're not interested in them going to heaven or hell. We just want them to follow my rules. We want them to follow law. And before Paul got saved, before he met Jesus and really understood, his whole focus was getting people to follow the rules. This isn't a behavioral gospel. Our pursuit isn't following the rules. The pursuit of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify us. Our pursuit is souls. Today, I want to talk about something that is incredibly important and not being done in American church. And I want to bring it up because it is something we all need to take seriously, and that is the pursuit 
of the soul. Not just our soul, but the soul of men. And we need to pursue in our day-to-day life this pursuit because when Paul got knocked off his donkey and he came back to Christ and he experienced Christ, his whole mission became about dying for people. That I'm going to give my life to rescue people who are bound in darkness and on their way to hell. And, and so I want to talk about that. Before I do that, though, I have to really explain what the soul is, which is your mind, your will, and emotion. Say it with me. Your mind, your will, and emotion. So it's your pr- mind, which is the process of reasoning. It's your will. It's your desires. Your will is your desire. Your will means desire. So it's my desires and it's my emotions. That's what makes up my soul. It's my mind, my will, and my emotions. Now, if you're an evolutionist, you won't believe you have a soul because evolutionists say you're nothing more than the product of amoeba in some swamp somewhere. And so you don't have a mind or a soul. You have a brain. And that brain is just an organ uh, uh, organ. Uh, that operates with biology. So it's chemical reaction. That's all it is. And so a famous evolutionist, in which I, I brought this up uh, in the summer when we did the In the Beginning series, um, he said, it's, I, the doctor kept saying, your, your body is trying to fight this. And you, you know, you're, he was kept referring to him that he, he had a body. And he said, I don't have a body. I am my body. So he didn't, evolutionists don't separate your body from, from this existence we would call a soul. We believe we have a, we have a soul, a body, and when you come to Christ, God births a spirit inside of you, completing the triune, the three parts of our, our wholeness of who we are. Does that make sense? And so your soul, your spirit is the perfect part of you. Your body is going to die one day, and how many know there will be a casket? Yesterday, Bob was laid to rest, an incredible leader in a number of churches. He was laid to rest, and an incredible amount of respect for the man who was buried yesterday, who, who they celebrated yesterday. But he, his body was still here. Man of God. He was a man of God, but his body was still in a box. But his soul was present with God. That's the eternal part of who you are. Your mind, your will, and emotions, your soul is the eternal part of who you are. Now, the reasons we don't pursue the souls of men, the reason we don't care much about reaching souls, telling people. And typically, if you've been here on a Sunday, I've been preaching the Pursuit series. This is going to be a teaching moment. I'm I'm not going to be getting excited a lot today. If you were ready to do that, just get ready to sit down and think. And if you have a notebook, get your pen out because we're going to write, write, you're going to be writing some things down because there's a lot of points I'm going to go over today and you want to look over this. Number one, the reason we don't value the soul or pursue the souls of men is we have no idea of the value of a soul. We underestimate the value of a soul, how important it is. Number two, and, and this is something I know if you're here, you may feel uncomfortable and you may feel like I'm just being, like I don't know what I'm talking about, but I, trust me, if you will stop and think about it and if you'll understand what I'm about to say, you'll get number two. Number two is you don't love, we don't love God. You say, but I love God and I've never led anyone to Christ. Friend, I'm not denying that you know and feel you love God, 
But fruit determines the tree. Fruit determines the tree. It should not be said of any single person who served the Lord their entire life, they've never led anyone to Jesus. Wouldn't you think it's entirely possible that in an entire lifetime that I would lead at least someone to Jesus? How many would agree? It's not just about me. Like when you fall in love with God, you start to become like them. You start to, the, who they are starts to become part of you because you start to fall in love with them. And, and what they love, you start to love. How many parents never loved soccer, but when your kids started playing soccer, you started to love soccer? I'm raising my hand, right? I, because I love my kids. If, if I love your children, you love me because why? I love your kids, right? There's, there's something about when we love God, we love what he loves. Um, Mark Buntain, a famous missionary to Calcutta, he said he would lay in bed at night. He'd hear the cries of children from his compound that he was living in. He would hear that like God would open his ears to hear the cries of children. He couldn't sleep because of the crying children he'd hear. He'd have to get up and go into the streets of Calcutta and find where that crying was coming from. And when he found it, he'd bring them to his compound, eventually creating an orphanage for the souls of little children that no one cared about. It was so bad in Calcutta that when children, because they couldn't afford to survive themselves, they would just let their kids go out and run in the streets, that there would be people who would shoot them like mice in the streets to remove them from, because there was no value of a soul. And it's easy to do that. This isn't in my message. But when you're playing video games and you're killing all those soulless humans on the screen, it's, it's easy to start to think that everyone is just, just, it's not a big deal. But every single person in this room has a soul put there by God, a mind, a will, an emotion. How many have ever heard of the Monrovian missionaries? If you were at first week, you heard uh, Krista Smith talk about this story. I actually looked into it and studied them, and it was an incredible thing. These, it's quite a story, but the Monrovian missionaries would spend time with the Lord, and, and they, they felt this incredible love for God, and it was literally the Lord directed them to go into missions. It was one of the first global missions movement our, our world has ever seen. And there was a journal that they found of two of the founders of this missions movement. They said, our heart is so moved for our love of God that we would be willing to even sell ourselves to do what God asked us to do. Now, this is incredible because it, in, the, in the recording in history, what they did, ended up doing, was in order to go on the slave ships to the islands in America and the Caribbean, they had to sell themselves as slaves in order to win the slaves to Jesus. That the slaves that were over, and you, you know a lot of the gospels that were sung in and, and the church in the black slave community in the south, you ask, where did that start? It started from a number of the Monrovian missionaries that had led slaves to Christ while in the belly of ships. 
How did they do it? They said, I will sell myself into slavery. I will be owned by another man in, in order to save a soul. Those are people that understand of all of the things on this planet of any value, the soul is at the top of the list. It's the only thing that lasts forever. So number one, we don't know the value of the soul. Number two, we don't, we don't love God. Number three, we don't love people. Well, who are you to tell me we don't love people? I love people, and yet you work next to somebody who has cancer and never offer to pray for them when you have the power of healing inside of you? Well, I just don't believe I do. But you said you're a believer. Believers do what believers do. They believe. If I don't believe, then how do I identify as a believer? We have the resurrection power of Christ living. How many believe the scripture says, greater is he that is in me than any power of darkness in this world? Then if it's living in me, how do I not believe that I have the power of God, resurrection power living in me to actually pray for someone and see them healed? Right? And so do I love people enough to take a risk? Do I love people enough to, to share with them, to be, for it to be an awkward moment, to, be, for, for, to take the risk of them thinking I'm weird when I'm not weird. You know, we've heard a lot of stories where people say, yeah, they were just weird Christians. They're just weird people. <laughs> right? If you're a weird person, of course it's going to be weird because you're weird in everything you do when you do it. Right? But just because this, this thing of the gospel isn't weird, it is life, and it is the truth. We, the, the best way to illustrate this of whether we love people is told by uh, Penn, the half of the Penn and Teller uh, magic show, Penn Gillette, and many of you have heard this before, a few years ago, recorded a short video where he talked about a story that happened to him at one of his shows, and Penn said uh, at the end of the show, one of the people that they had called up to do one of the things came up to him and said, could you, could you sign something for me? And he said, sure. And the man, who was a very, as he described him, a very kind, and, and he said this, sane, gentle person uh, 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 came to me and gave me a New Testament and said, will you sign my New Testament? So he signed the New Testament, and then he put, put it back and pulled out another one and said, this is for you. And then proceeded to tell the man his testimony and that God loved him. And he, and he goes, and Penn says this in his short video. Goes, Listen, I'm an atheist. I don't believe there's a God. But this man, I felt incredible love from this man. He was a very loving and kind man. And, and, then, he, and then Penn makes this statement. This is what he says. I always, I've always said, Gillette explained, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them, this is because, this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and then not tell them? Gillette then offered this example to illustrate a point. If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that 
this truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I would tackle you, and this is more important than that. When we love ourselves more than people, we're more concerned about what we say and how I'm going to be perceived than recognizing. You see, the problem isn't that God isn't relevant to people. The problem in America is that the church has become irrelevant to people. It's because the church has become silent. Your silence is not relevant to the darkness. And when you begin to speak the life that is in you, and you don't let the world deceive you to think they don't want it, then the church will become more relevant to the world around us once again. It's your silence that isn't relevant. Beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Isn't that what the Word of God says? Or we've forgotten that as well. Number four, so number one, we don't know the value of the soul. Number two, we don't love God like we think we do. Number three, we don't love people. We don't really care if they go to hell or not. We just want to be accepted because now the whole world revolves around me and it's about how I'm perceived. It's whether people like me or not. It's, it's I don't want to be persecuted on Facebook. I don't want to be persecuted by people around me. So I'm not going to share the love of Jesus. I don't want to be persecuted by people. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut or I'm not going to say anything to anyone or we just don't believe in hell. We really don't believe in hell, or we believe that God won't send anyone to hell, which, by the way, He won't. Everybody is already on their way to hell. He doesn't have to send anyone to hell. They're already going to hell. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue them out of hell, to set them free from the death that was sending them to hell. One-third of Christians today do not believe in the existence of hell. One-third. 20% of them believe that if people do go to hell, it'll be a lot like the prison system. They'll, they'll serve a sentence based on the wrongs they did, and then once they've served their time, they'll come out of hell and enter heaven. Nowhere in the, in the entirety of the Bible... Is that ever mentioned? Yet Jesus mentions hell on a number of occasions and says, the only way to the Father is through me. And he comes and dies on a cross to set people free. And, and, and then we say, well, I don't believe there is a hell. Well, if there is no hell, Jesus is a liar and you should not do anything he said. So what is the value of the soul? The soul is of infinite worth. Ecclesiastes says 3.11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning of, of, of God. See, it, what, it, it's an interesting thing. I, I've, I've, I've heard, now I know what it means. When I've heard many people say, it's hard watching your parents get old. Right? And some of you in here are, getting, are the parents getting old right? But you all know what I'm talking about. It's hard to watch. And part of it is we, my mother-in-law, um, we just went to see them for a few days uh, to give my father-in-law a break because she has what is probably the uh, really uh, dementia. And it's hard because you watch her and she just 
does not remember anything from 20 minutes ago. And she just stares at you, and it's hard watching and looking right at her, and she's totally normal. Like, she isn't walking funny, she's not, but her mind isn't operating as it once did. And you watch, I was just staring at her, and I'm like, and, and what's really going through my mind as I'm staying here is, inside of me, I feel like we're going to live forever, right? But when you see them get old, you realize it comes to an end. That one day, as they are, so shall I be, right? And you realize that th this life doesn't last forever, and, and the reality, why is that? It's because your soul is eternal, and it's who you are. So your soul thinks eternally, but your body says, I have, a, I have a due date. I have a dead date. This is coming to an end. The value of your soul that just goes on and on. Your soul was created also, the, the, the value. So your soul was created in the image of God. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And God says in Genesis 1.26, he says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the birds of this, and, and all of the things that that verse talks about is that you were created, that your soul was created uh, to, to, uh, to exist forever, and it's in the image of God so that your soul is able to interact with God. It, an interesting thing. And many of us do not value our soul. You know, a lot of us, uh, there, maybe you go to the gym and you work on taking care of your body. Some of you take about a half hour to get ready for bed. Not, you know, you, know, you spend more, like I take a half hour to get ready to start my day. But there's, you go through the spraying, the spritzing, you know, and then the hair, and you, and you, and you got all the, and you got this routine you do before you bed, and it got real quiet when I said that. I'm, that's fine that you take a half hour. I'm not criticizing it, but you, you take half hour to go to bed, and that's great. It makes you beautiful and, and all of that, and you go to the gym, and you work out, and it's funny, we really take care of the health of our body, but we don't often take care of the health of our soul. You know, it's, it's similar to this. There was a man who wanted to get married, but he was uncomfortable in asking this girl to marry him. So he thought, what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap up this box with a ring in it. I'm going to put it in a beautiful package, and then I'll see what she thinks. So she, he takes the box through and he says, uh, here you go, dear. Open, open up. Tell me what you think. And she opens up this beautifully wrapped box, and it's a velvet box with the linen type inside the box, and it's got this really cool hinge and hinge on the back and a little clasp that, that slips down, and, and then inside is this beautiful, beautiful diamond ring. He says, now you think about this, and I'm going to come back, and I'll ask you what you think later. And so he goes away, and the next day he comes back, and he says, now what did you think about the gift I gave you yesterday? And she goes, well, I really loved it. It was amazing. You know, the, the outside of the box was just felt, and it was just soft. I wanted to sleep with it. It was so soft. And when you open it, you open it, and that hinge was just so ornate. It was beautiful. I just stared at it, and I loved the clasp. It was one of those loopy things where you just, you did that, and I played with that a while. And, and, and I think one of the coolest things is when you opened it, a light came on, and it just shined. And then it had the beautiful white linen thing in it. He goes, yeah, but 
what did you think about what was in the box? And she goes, oh, that wire and glass, I threw it away when I opened it up. That's a lot how we treat our soul. We take care of this box, and we don't even care about what's inside the box. The soul, our mind, our will, and emotion, taking care of what's there. So take your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 37. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So what makes your soul so valuable? One is the creativity. Who made it? Who made your soul? And the Lord God formed man in the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils, breathed uh, the breath of life, and, be, and the man became a living being. In Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, it's interesting. I've seen the Mona Lisa. I've walked up to the Mona Lisa. I was not impressed. And anyone who sees it, they're like, it's a lot smaller than I thought it would be. It really is. You go down this long hallway, it's at the end of, you come around a corner and you walk down another, this long, and, and it's just not very impressive. And you got all these other pieces, but it's not so much the painting as it is the one who painted it. You know, you could look at a painting and it'd be not that very nice, but because it says Picasso at the bottom of it, the, the artist brings the value to it. Number two is, and God created you. Number two, potentiality. What, the, what's it worth? What can it do? You know, if you had a goose that laid a golden egg, how many knows that goose would be an expensive goose? Even though it may look like every other goose, that goose lays an old golden leg, it's going to have some value. The reason the soul is so valuable is what God has planned for that soul uh, M Michelangelo saw a block of marble one time. He was a great sculptor, and he says, there's an angel in that block, and I'm going to set it free. There's something inside of you, that soul inside of you. There's something extraordinary God can do through it. A man by the name of Russell Conwell, a Baptist preacher who started, founded Temple College, used to give a lecture called The Anchor Acres of Diamonds. There was a man in Africa, true story, that owned a plot of land, a large plot of land. And he had heard stories of people discovering diamonds in another part of the country. So he sold his fields and his land in order to go and to find diamonds. He wanted to discover them. And he went out, searched for years, eventually ended up dying searching for diamonds. Meanwhile, the person who bought his land back where he was at was out walking one day only to discover a large diamond in one of the creeks. He looked down and it was a big creek and then later discovered the field was full of diamonds. Isn't it interesting how we look at everyone else and what they're doing? We never stop to consider that you are valuable 
in the Lord's hands. You're those diamonds. You're that acre of diamonds. Stop going and search what everyone else is doing and start, start taking a look at where you're at. Number three is durability. How long will you last? You'll last forever and ever and ever and ever. When something is of great value, it's because it lasts, right? My, my wife, you know, um, I like buying things that last. You know, my tools are always the best tool, you know, that's going to last forever and, and, and furnish. We bought a sofa and a love seat from Flexsteel, and it's gone on and on. And Heather's like, I am not buying a high-quality furniture set again <laughs> because <laughs> I don't want to look at the same thing for that many years. <laughs> right? So of her of great value is something that will break down in four years. <laughs> so we have to get something new. I, I like something that lasts a long time, and your soul will go on and on and on and on. Billy Sunday used to say, eternity is a lot like if the earth had to be moved to another galaxy. Eternity would be a lot like a bird that would take a grain of sand from the earth, one bird, put it in his beak, and then fly a million years to the other galaxy, drop the grain of dirt off, and then fly a million years back, pick up another grain of sand and take it back, and do that until the entire planet has been moved to the new galaxy, and it would only be breakfast time in eternity. It's a long time. Your soul will last for a long time. Fourth is rarity. You are rare. There is no one like you. God doesn't make copies. So why, isn't it interesting, if, if you're the only one like you, why do we try to be like everyone else? God has a plan for your life. And then desirability, you're desirable. If you go to a realtor and you say, how much is my house worth? Their answer should be whatever someone's willing to pay for it. Whatever someone's willing to pay for it. Because it's only worth what someone's able to pay. And you know what's interesting? Christ, God, sent his son to pay the price of his life for your soul. That's how valuable your soul is to the creator of the universe. Knowing that, First Peter, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot. So here's the foolish transactions we make. Number one, we have to understand, he says, if you gain the whole world, no one gains the whole world. There's never been anyone who has gained the whole world. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Isn't it amazing some of the things people sell their souls for? Judas did it for 30 pieces of silver. You know how many people, they, they, they say that they'll sell their soul for, for something. You can't gain the whole world. You'll never have the whole world. Number two, the part of the world you do gain, you can't keep. Charlemagne the Great was discovered sitting in his throne, totally decayed, his crown tilting on his dead skull, with his finger, a Bible open in his lap, and his finger putting to, to this text in Matthew 8, he's pointing at it. You, he had as much as anybody could have on the planet, but he's sitting there dead. You can't keep it. It's, it will be gone. Centuries later, they open it only to discover that all of it was gone. Here's the third foolish transaction. The world will never satisfy you. The truth is, if you get the whole world, if you get the whole world, or even part of the world, even then you won't be satisfied. 
you're told if you just get married to the right person, if you just get a house, if you have children, if you get the right job that you wake up every morning enjoying going to, if, if you get, make enough money that you have no worries or cares in the world, if, if, if you just you get the right friends, man, the friends will make it right. You go on the right vacation, all of those things. If all of those things happen for you, you'd still be wanting. You get there and you would realize this does not satisfy me. It's not enough. And you know what the world tells you? You need it just a little more. Go all in. Put more in, more time into the table. Put pursue it more. If you lose your soul, it is irreversible. It's over. If you've met, if Hebrew says it's appointed on a man to die, and after that, the judgment. It's, it's irreversible. It's immeasurable. It's an immeasurable loss. All the wealth that any man has ever had cannot compare to the loss of a soul. It's immeasurable. It's irreplaceable. You can't replace your soul with another soul. There's no, it's like time. Once time's gone, you can't re re replace time. Listen, there was a woman, she was newly married, and she, uh, her husband came home one day after work, and he noticed his wife was crying. So he went up to his wife, and he said, honey, um, what's wrong? And she said, well, I made you biscuits so that you'd come home, you'd be able to eat these biscuits. And she, he's like, well, what happened? And he says, well, the dog ate the biscuits. And he's like, honey, don't worry about it. We can get a new dog. <laughs> there are some things you can replace, but you cannot replace your soul. You cannot replace. It's inexcusable. You don't have to lose your soul. Maybe you've heard stories about people who sold their soul to the devil, and the story, the most famous one would be Ozzy Osbourne, you know, sold his soul to the devil, and, he, and when he did, eventually his whole life turned on that moment, and, which is interesting because the devil really never had to purchase your soul because before Christ, uh, it was like, uh, uh, there's a number of ways to look at it. If Christ died and you give him your life, then he purchased your soul. The Bible really says that he purchased the souls of everybody. Right? Well, if Christ purchased your soul and he owns it, how do you sell it to the devil? It's not yours. Right? You, you, can't, you can't sell it if, if that were the case. But let me ask you this question. If a man came up to you and he said, I can give you fame, position, money, I can give you it all. Everything you dreamed of, I can give to you in this moment. If you want it, I'll give, but you need to do one thing. Well, what's the one thing? You need to let me take your finger and cut it off, your pinky finger. You know, what's interesting is most people in this room would say, okay, because I don't mean that as you're evil. What I'm saying is you think, for the cost of everything you're giving me and all I got to give up is my pinky finger? Well, that's not that big of a deal. I can live without a pinky finger, right? How many say, yeah, yeah, I get, I mean, think about it, right? Some of you are like, no. And the husband's like, yes, we would. Your pinky finger would be gone, <laughs> right? No, we, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but what if they said, you got to give up your right arm? Well, then a lot of people would say, no, 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 that's a little too much. I wouldn't go there. But there would still be many people who would say, 
if I could have everything I ever dreamed of, everything goes well, and all the things I wanted just happened, I'd give up my right arm for it, right? If I could hit hole-in-ones with one arm, I would do that, right? I... What if he said, okay, if you want all of that stuff, you've got to give up your sight and your hearing. Very few people would do that because many people would pay anything to be able to see and hear. Are you with me? Your soul is your future. It's eternity. And there are all kinds of people selling their future out for stuff that's nothing, that comes to nothing more than a dead end. Yet there are people who are giving up their future, their life, their eternity in God's perfect neighborhood for a far less things, for things that are passing away, dead ends. You know what this, 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 it's just, it's a fatal tragedy. It's a fatal tragedy. There was a man, there was a man who uh, wanted to move from the old country to America. And he had so many things that he, he knew it would be a, a challenge to get it all there. So he said, I'm going to just sell it all, and then I'm going to buy a diamond. Because diamonds hold their value, and I can sell the diamond in America. It's a little, it's, it's something I can carry. And so he did that. He, he takes the diamond, and he gets on the ship, and he, he's uh, on the ship, and he's, you know, at some point he pulls out the diamond just to admire its beauty. And after a while, people notice that he's holding this beautiful diamond. They come over and look at it, and they started thinking, wow, this must be a wealthy man. And, and they started treating him like that. And they started, you know, treating him, you know, they, they were nicer to him. And, 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 he, and they were admiring the diamond. And he just really enjoyed the notoriety that he was getting. And at one point, he'd hold the diamond over the railing of the ship over the ocean. And people would be like, man, he must be very wealthy to do that. And they would gasp. And then at one point, he'd start tossing the diamond in the air and catching it on the deck of the ship. And he was just amazed how people... People would treat him like the only person with wealth that would do that kind of stuff. And then, then, then one day he's out there, you know, just casually acting like he, you know, what he wants. And he throws it up and trips on something. And the diamond trickles and then falls off the edge of the, the boat into the ocean deep. And the ship just keeps going on. And the man thinks, how foolish am I to throw away my whole life? just to be perceived certain way. It's interesting because you may say this, Pastor, that story probably isn't true. Nobody could be that stupid. Nobody could be that stupid unless some of you are playing more carelessly with your own soul, which is a far greater value than any diamond. Some of us aren't even, all we see are people, we don't see a soul. We just see obstacles, we see people we want to follow the rules, we see people that just, you just got to behave better, we just see people who are in the way, who are taking my time, rather than seeing, the object, seeing them as the object of God's love and an eternal soul that needs to know Jesus. For the believer, all pursuits in this life should ultimately point us back to the pursuit of the soul. Any pursuit in our life that do not lead to rescuing the souls of people are pursuits that will lead you to dead ends and regrets. And when you're 80 and 90 years old, you will look back and say, how many souls could I have saved that are now in the eternity of hell 
because I said no. Because I said no. Because I said I'm going to live a life that leads to a dead end. I'm going to live for things that have no value at all. At the end of this life, I look back and I say, I really don't have anything to take into eternity because I didn't even lead one to Christ. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be rude. Please understand my heart. I don't want the 80-year-old you to look back and say, Pastor, why didn't you tell me then I should have valued a soul? Will you close your eyes for a moment? We do something called the Prayer of Three at Bethel's Rock. We've done it for years. I did it when we were in Michigan. It's not hard. But the Lord is going to show you three people in your life that do not know Jesus. And this is a habit of people from Bethel's Rock. This is, a, this is a, one of those things we do. You have three names of people that don't know Christ that you will commit to pray for every single day. And people on that list are going to get saved because you said, yes, I value the soul of a person enough to pray for them. I value them because I love God, because I love people, because I know their value, and because I know there's a hell. I value them, so I'm not only going to just pray for them, I'm going to fast and pray for them, that they would experience Jesus, and then when they do, you take them off your list, and you put someone else on your list, and you begin praying for them, and calling on them, and calling on their name into heaven, and, and, and literally calling them out of their darkness as you pray. So right now, I ask for you to have a pen and a piece of paper. I want you to take 30 seconds, and then I want you to write down the names. If you don't know what they are already, if you're someone new and you haven't been a part, you don't know this, write their names down so that you can, don't just think it, take it offering envelope. I used to always do that. Do we still have offering envelopes? You just pull it out and just write on there the names of the person saying, God, I commit to pray for these. I say yes to this person because their soul is that valuable.